morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to the book of Nehemiah. We've been in it for a couple months. In Nehemiah 4, 10 to 23. Nehemiah 4, 10 to 23. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, how good it is to sing and believe that through the storms of life, that you never let go. That we can take our fatigue, our frustration, our fear to you, knowing that your perfect love casts out fear. And Father, thank you for the time of communion, reminding us that through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, that he took our sin upon himself, that if we would believe by faith in salvation through Christ alone, we would be given eternal life. We have much to be grateful for. And Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word, we ask that you would speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, that we would be transformed by your word for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I want to begin with a fictitious story. While the story itself is fictitious, the characters in it, Satan and his minions, are not fictitious. The Bible tells us that Satan is a fallen angel. His demons are fallen angels. They're powerful. But they're defeated, they're defeated by Christ, but they're real. So the story's fictitious, the characters are not. It's an age-old story, it's of Satan who is having a little garage sale. I suppose he wants to raise some funds, maybe to buy an air conditioning, it's getting a little hot in his digs. And so he begins to sell some of the trade secrets, the tricks of the trade that he has used to afflict humanity. And frankly, the prices are good. The young demons are excited. Each has their stone-cold heart setting on buying one or more of the tricks of the trade. There's hatred and malice and lust. There's greed and gluttony. There's a whole series of them. Prices, again, they're pretty good. But there's one off to the side. It's clearly worn. It's been clearly used so often. It's past its prime. But the price is exorbitant. And one little demon, he screws up the courage to go to his infernal imminence. He says, sir, what, what is that one over, over in the corner? What are you selling there? Ah, said his infernal eminence, that's one of my favorites. That's despair, that's despondency, that's discouragement, that's depression. The demon's unimpressed. He said, well, why are you selling it for such a high price? Oh, said the snake, you have so much to learn. You see, those tools are common to man. It's because of the fall 
where sometimes I can't reach a godly woman with jealousy, all godly and ungodly can be reached with despondency. I sometimes can't reach a godly man, a man of prayer with envy, but discouragement and despair, it's an equal opportunity trick. It falls on the godly and the ungodly alike. And I think we're going to see some of that in today's text. Now, I don't know if Satan ever had that little garage sale, but I do know this. Sometimes we, in the church, in the evangelical church, we've been duped into believing that all discouragement, all despair, all despondency, all depression is because of personal sin, but Scripture would not validate that at all. I think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who writes the book of Lamentations. That's a man in the deep, moody blues. I think of Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1 and 8, tells us that during the patriarchal period, there was none like Job, not one. God says to Satan about Job, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. And yet circumstances afflict Job. His children die. His body is afflicted and his health wanes. His wealth is taken from him. And by chapter 3, verse 1 and following, he wants to curse the day of his birth. And yet he is a godly man. We're going to see some of that despondency, despair among the tribe of Judah, among the Jews who are building the walls in Nehemiah chapter 4. I want to pick up in Nehemiah 4, I want to read verses 10 to 12. In Judah, and there would be two ways to take Judah, wouldn't there? We can take it as the southern tribes the southern nation, or we can take it as one of the twelve. For technical reasons, I'll tell you, this is talking about the tribe of Judah, one of the twelve. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions. They said to us ten times, you must return to us. Now, you remember our context. Our context is that the, wall, the walls of Jerusalem have laid in ruins for 141 years. The Babylonian monarch Nebuchadnezzar came. First in 605 B.C. and then in 586 B.C. He ransacked Jerusalem. He went up on the Temple Mount. He destroyed the temple and he left the walls in ruins and the people's lives in utter despair. It's been 141 years since the glory of God has been seen and this is the city of the great king. And those pagans around Jerusalem have mocked the God of the universe. If this is the city of the great king and it lies in ruins, he must not be a great king. Or so the logic has gone. And so God raises up Nehemiah. Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem, but he's a Jew by descent. 
And you remember that he lives somewhere between 800 and 1,000 miles away. He lives in the citadel of Susa. He serves as the cupbearer, which is like the prime minister of the most powerful monarch on the face of the earth, King Artaxerxes. He's got a cushy job. He's got a job with probably no upward potential because he's number two in the world. And yet he gives it up. God's call is upon his life. And he longs to go to the city of Jerusalem, the city of his heritage, because the glory of God has been mocked because the walls have laid in ruins for 141 years. And so he arrives there, and you remember he has spent four months prior to that in prayer and fasting and mourning, then four more months in preparation. Then he arrives there, he spends three days in further prayer and preparation for his heart and his plan, and then they begin to work, and according to chapter 4, verse 6, the wall has gotten to half the height. We're probably only into two weeks of the 52 days, and it's already reached half its height, and things were going well. And chapter 4, verse 6 says, the people had a heart to do the work. This is like a leader's dream. And then Sanballat begins to spout off. And Sanballat begins to utter threats. And the heart to work becomes a heart of fear. And they take their eyes off the reason to rebuild the wall, which is more than just their safety. It's the glory of God. And fear begins to replace the vision and the passion they have for God. And the text tells us that Judah has fear in their heart. Let me read the text. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. Remember I told you this is probably not the nation of Judah, though it's a part of it. It's probably the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah is the leading tribe. All the way back in Genesis, God said, of the twelve tribes, the one that will lead is Judah. Let me read from Genesis chapter 49, 8 and 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. The Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, does not have a pronoun him like my ESV. It actually has a noun. It's Shiloh, a name for Christ. So the scepter of leadership that God gave the tribe of Judah will not depart from the tribe of Judah until Shiloh, until Christ comes. That's 450 years in the future of this text. In other words, what we have here is the leading tribe suddenly filled with frustration, fatigue, and fear. Their eyes is off the vision, and the leaders are no longer leading the people to rebuild the walls because of the glory of God. And I read this text, and, and I would never wish fatigue and frustration and fear on anyone Certainly not on the tribe of Judah. 
But it's helpful to me to see that, that this trick of Satan, this trick of his trade, fatigue and frustration and failure and fear, is one that has hit leaders through all generations. But there's always an answer, and the answer is God. So we read in 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he, God, who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so when I face fatigue and frustration and fear and a lack of vision, I need to look back to God and remember that greater is he, God, who is in me than he, the enemy of my soul, who is in the world. That's what Nehemiah needs to reinvigorate among these people. Verse 4 tells us, or usually verse 10 tells us that there's fatigue. It says the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. Failing, the Hebrew word kasal, it means to totter. Let me put it in football terms. Nehemiah's team, God's team, we'll call it the Packers. The Packers have been playing the first half well. They're beating Sam Bollett's Samaritan Bears pretty handily. The score is at least 21 to 0 because the walls have been built to halfway. But you read in verses 10 and following, especially verses 7, 8, 9, 10 and following, that Sam Bollett is bringing in fresh players, blue chip players from Amman and Ashdod and Arabia. And the Packers are getting weary. And so we need Coach Nehemiah, a great coach, to, to infuse them with a new vision. Now that's as far as my analogy goes, but I'll go ahead and tell you the end of the score. It's 35-0, the Pack will win. <laughs> analogy over. The first cause of discouragement from our text is clearly fatigue. Some of us can relate, can't we? I wonder how many of us have been would-be carpenters. And if we're really honest, our basement and our garage has three or four unfinished products. Projects that we started that we never finished. Some of you are seamstresses and you have buttons that need attention, zippers that need to be attached, dresses and suits that need to be finished. Some are puzzlers. My wife's a puzzler, but she actually finishes the things. But if we had a puzzle of like 100 pieces, I might finish it. I'm really good with 12 pieces. <laughs> she does these 1,000, 1,500, sometimes 2,000 pieces. Man, I don't have the patience, I don't have the time, I don't have the skill, I don't have the vision. I can't finish them. She finishes them. Some of you are readers. How many books have you read halfway through and you've never finished? We know what it's like to have fatigue. And they have fatigue and they have frustration. They've gone up halfway and now they begin to look around. They need a new vision. They say there's too much rumble. There's too much rubble all around. There's 141 years of broken stones and of mortar and the like, and, and they're discouraged and they're despondent and they want to give up. I remember when Betty Ann and I got married, 
To my knowledge, Betty Ann brought like one piece of furniture into our marriage, which is probably one more piece more than I brought into it. And she brought in this desk. It's not of high monetary value, but it's a desk that she was given to her by her grandfather and has great sentimental value. And I remember observing this desk for a while, and it was all beat up, and I thought, you know what? I'm like super husband. I can refinish this thing. And I know nothing about refinishing, but, you know, I'm a guy. I can do this. And so I estimated about 20 hours, even though it has all sorts of intricate woodworking, and all right, 15 hours if I'm really good, 20 hours if I'm really bad, and I'm like 60 or 70 hours into this thing, and, and man, I've made a disaster of it, and it's nowhere near being done. So I slap on some stain, and I declare it's complete. My wife is slow to anger and abounding in love. That's really true. She probably doesn't mention this thing for three years. I, I kid you not. We have a little disposable income at this point, and she says, you know, I might call somebody up, a professional, to, uh, to finish this. Wound is deep. We discover we don't have enough money for a professional to refinish it, and so she says, you know what, maybe I'll ask my dad to refinish it. Wound is even deeper. Yeah, you know how this is. So I determined I'm going to refinish this desk. And I did. Never, ever to be refinished again. Maybe her dad helped just a little. I don't know. The second cause of depression, fatigue, frustration. And the third is fear. Verse 11, Sanballat sends word. They will not know or see till we come along among them and kill them and stop the work. Let's understand what's going on. If you know the topography and the geography of Israel, you know that Samaria is, well, 15 miles as the crow flies, so to speak, uh, north of Jerusalem. It's not the type of place that you would go necessarily to do trade because most of Samaria is a mountain. It's Mount Gerizim. It's actually a very steep mountain, and the people live on top, and so the trade would be on top. Sambalat likes the trade that is existing, and people will go to the top of Mount Gerizim to trade because he's been controlling Jerusalem. In fact, the Samaritans have been controlling Jerusalem for quite some time. But if Jerusalem becomes strong, if the walls are rebuilt, then Jerusalem will become a trading center again. And if Jerusalem becomes a trading center again, nobody will go to the top of Mount Gerizim to trade. The Samaritan Dow Jones Industrial Average will totally collapse. We'll have 1929 all again, this time in the Middle East. And so he begins to threaten them. There's fatigue, there's frustration, and now there's fear. And Sambalat has an army, and he lets them know that he will come and kill them if they rebuild the walls. So Nehemiah has a vision problem. He has a group of individuals who started well. Verse 6 of chapter 4, let us do the work. Now frustration and fear, they see all the ruins. They're threatened, their lives are in danger. 
and the work stops. And so Nehemiah needs to cheer on the crowds. Let me read verses 13 to 18. Nehemiah 4, verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the walls, in open spaces, I stationed the people by the clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. Half held the spears, the swords, or excuse me, the shields, the bows, the coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and his held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. One can hardly read these verses without admiration for Nehemiah. Here is a man who understands that there's a problem, that there's a crisis. He doesn't sweep the problem under the rug. Le real leaders never sweep problems under the rug. They address the problem. And the problem here is a lack of vision. It's a lack of insight. It's a lack of understanding of what they're really doing. They're building the wall because of the glory of God. It has been mocked in the minds of the pagans and the lips of the pagans all around Jerusalem. So what does he say in verse 14? He says, remember the Lord. Now that may seem to be trite, formulaic, simplistic. You have a group that is suffering the deep moody blues. They have despair and despondency, depression and discouragement. And you come off with this flippant statement, just remember the Lord. It's not like that. You remember what James said in James 4.8. He said, draw near to the Lord, and he will draw near to you. And so when we say, remember the Lord, we're coming alongside someone who has lost their vision. They've lost their goal. They've lost their purpose. And we're saying you need to, to have a re-envisioning purpose with God. You need to draw near to God, and as you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You need to spend time in prayer. Now some of us who have had bouts of discouragement or depression, we know that prayer at such times is very difficult. Maybe you can't force yourself to pray, but you can get some friends around you to pray over you, to pray for you, and to give you a new vision. And that's the second part of remembering the Lord. They have the wrong vision. Their vision is now self-preservation, rather than the advancement of God's glory. And that happens to me, and, and maybe it happens to you. I take my eyes off of the purpose of humanity. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I take my eyes off of my purpose to bring glory to God, and I start thinking of myself. Remember the Lord. Remember the purpose. Remember the goal. I want to remember God. 
So I draw near to God, and he draws near to me, and he's a comforting, gracious God. And he gives me a new vision and a new commission. And he reminds me of his promises. That's also part of remembering the Lord. Promises like that written by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but at every point he was tempted and he did not sin. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that, in, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Or promises like Paul wrote, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect, complete, teleos, in your weakness. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. You remember the phrase, remember the main? Remember the main was a rallying cry of the Spanish-American War, and it led to victory as people remembered the destruction of one of our ships. When Nehemiah says, remember the Lord, keep your eyes on the Lord, draw near to the Lord, he will draw near to you. Allow him to give you a greater vision beyond yourself. And remember the promises that are great of our great Lord. And as verse 15 attests, as they remembered the Lord and they reoriented themselves to building the walls for the glory of God, the work resumed, and it resumed with earnest. And then verses 16 to 18, I love this. Here we have Nehemiah. Plan A has failed, he goes to plan B. And if plan B fails, he goes to plan C. That's a leader. A leader understands that sometimes you need to redirect. And so he actually gets down to about 25% efficiency with his workforce. Plan A was everybody work on the wall. But now we have threats from Sanballat. And so he says, okay, half the guys, you're going to hold the spears and the bows and the arrows. And you're going to hold the, the coats and the mails. You're going to hold all these things so you can't work. And for those of you who work, I want a trowel in your right hand and I want a sword in your left hand. And so we have 25% efficiency. But that's what's necessary because these people are fatigued, they're frustrated, they're fearful. And so he works with them to give them a confidence and he reorients their vision. Remember the Lord. And they begin to rebuild the wall. We see more of the same in verses 19 to 23. Allow me to read it to us. And I said to the nobles and to the officials, and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon 
at his right hand side. You remember, you remember that the wall is about two and a half miles long. Lots of vulnerability to Sanballat and his army. So Nehemiah comes and says, what we're going to do is we're going to station buglers, trumpeters, along the wall. If you hear the sound of the trumpet, you rush there. If you hear it on the right, you rush to the right. If you hear it on the left, you rush to the left. You go to where the trumpet sounds. We're going to stand together. We're going to stand unified. We're going to build this together. So he gives them a new vision. He reorients his plan. He tells them to remember the Lord. The vision is about rebuilding the walls for the glory of God. He reminds them that we're in this together. There's a buddy system. And we're going to protect one another. And then the last verse, I love it. Nehemiah and his guard, they don't change their clothes. They don't shower. They don't take breaks. They're with the gals. They're with the guys. Nehemiah is a leader who will never tell people, you need to do this, but he won't do it. He's among the people. He's one of the people. He's a leader's leader. He serves the people. As you and I conclude this morning, let me just make a couple quick closing thoughts. The first one is this. I find it discouraging when sometimes in the evangelical church today, we have decided, I think wrongly so, that all despair and despondency, discourage and depression is over personal sin. It's not. Certainly it is the result of the fall, the fall of humanity. But we've already noted Job. We've already noted this man that was more righteous than any other. That God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And he's a man that will curse the day of his birth. We've talked about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. A godly man hard life. You think of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. You remember Elijah, don't you? He had had a high point in his life. He was out Mount Carmel. He had just defeated King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and 450 prophets of Baal and the 400, 400 prophetess of Asherah were AWOL. It was a great moment, and yet he became very melancholy. He begins to think that he's the only one that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And you remember what he does. He says, God, take my life from me. Beam me up, Scotty. I am done. I've had enough. And you remember how God responds. God says, you prophet, you're embarrassing. You're humiliating to me. I'm going to find another prophet. But that's not what God did. God sent a ministering spirit to minister to Elijah. God sent ravens to feed him. He was given extended rest. And then God gave him a lifelong friend, Elisha. That's how God tenderly treated somebody with despair and despondency, discouragement, Depression. 
May we be like God with one another. May we be the church, the one another's. Nehemiah didn't beat them up. He gave them a new vision, a renewed vision. To remember the Lord, to remember something beyond themselves, to remember that they were building the wall for the glory of God and that they would be there one for another. And he led them and was a part of them and cared for them. I want to be a Nehemiah. Trust many of you already are like Nehemiah. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for the life of Nehemiah, the man, the man of God. May we be like him, and may we care for one another with tenderness and grace. And may we stand for your glory. And may we build for your glory, for you are worthy. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.